Today's passage is Romans 8, 14 through 25. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what is seen? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Thank you, Sydney. Good morning, brothers and sisters. Why don't you go ahead and grab your Bibles this morning, open up to Romans chapter 8, if you haven't already. We're going to be right there in the middle of that great chapter. Before we dive in this morning, let me just say a couple things. If you're a guest with us this morning, we're really honored that you're here. Thank you for being with us. We're walking right through the book of Romans verse by verse. And I also want to just take a minute and uh, just say uh, to the heroes who serve so well behind the scenes every day, uh, those here who are here and thanks to you, none of us would be here. And that's moms and grandmoms and great-grandmoms this morning. And we've said it in different ways. But again, I just want to say on behalf of a grateful church. If you're here and you're a mom or a grandmother or a great-grandmother, thank you for your ministry and your service to all of us. And church, could we just let our moms and grandmoms know that we love them and are thankful for them this morning? <laughs> you make sure you take care of mom today, all right? Right after church all day. Make her day special uh, for mom today. Uh, or we're in Romans chapter 8, as we said, and we're walking through a section we've really called Life in the spirit and man this is just a high water mark in the book of romans and high water mark and really all of scripture life in the spirit and we're understanding the realities that as a believer a follower in jesus christ god dwells in you the very spirit of god himself dwells in us and all that that means for us and the incredible implications of that in every area of life and for some of us, it's kind of being a reacquaintance with the Spirit and who He is. For some of us, I've had conversations and there's this new understanding of what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit of God and His ministry in the lives of every believer. And one of the reasons I think this series and especially this chapter has been so important to us is, is we want to know who the Spirit is and what He's doing, but we also live in a world that's very important to know some of the things we hear that are attributed to the Holy Spirit to be able to say that's not the Spirit of God. Just reading through a, a message by a pastor named John MacArthur and he was listing out some things as you kind of scroll through Christian TV and 
read different magazines and follow certain pastors out there that claim to be Christian, they're going to attribute certain things to the Holy Spirit that just biblically speaking are simply not the work of the Spirit. Here are a few examples of the things that you're going to hear out there that are attributed to the Spirit that if the Spirit is at work, He will be knocking people down on the floor. He will be causing people to giggle and laugh without control. He'll be causing people to feel like they've been electrically shocked. He'll be causing people to fall into a hypnotic spell and sometimes a trance that lasts for hours. There are Holy Ghost convulsions. There are Holy Ghost hiccups. Yes, there are Holy Ghost hiccups. There are some that say the Holy Ghost, when He comes upon you, will make you feel like you're drunk. You'll stumble. You'll stagger. Holy Spirit may cause you to shake and quiver. If He comes on you, you're going to speak nonsense, gibberish. He may even cause you to make animal sounds. Like a dog or a duck, it says. Here's one. The Holy Spirit may levitate you up off the floor 10 feet high and move you across the room. And some of these can be yours if you support monthly the televangelist that's supporting these things or saying these things are of the Spirit. So the point in all that, and some of those are even a little bit comical, but let me just remind you, there are some gross misinterpretations of who the Spirit is and what He does out there. The danger in those things is not only is it a distortion of God Himself, the Spirit, and who He's made Himself, He's revealed Himself through the pages of Scripture, but also these things are distractions for us from the real ministry of the work of the Holy Spirit, who He is and what He's doing in our lives. So Paul kind of clears this up for us and gives us a really clear understanding in Romans chapter 8 of the ministry and the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's the big truth that we've been looking at these last few weeks, and I'm going to give you a second big truth this morning. We're going to kind of ping out from there. The Holy Spirit indwells every follower of Jesus. That's good news, brothers and sisters. By faith in Jesus and His finished work on the cross, at the moment of salvation, the very Spirit of God comes to indwell you. The Bible says you are in Him. He is in you. There is this union with God Himself. The Spirit of God indwells every believer. The implications of that reality touch every area of our lives. And Paul's listing out some of these implications in Romans chapter 8. Now, Romans chapter 8, life in the Spirit chapter, it begins with there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's good news. It ends with there are no separation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I'm convinced Paul says neither death nor height nor principalities nor powers, things present, things to come, nor height nor death, any other created thing. Point is, nothing can separate a child of God from the love of God. How's that possible? The finished work of Christ and the indwelling presence of His Spirit in every believer. And Paul lists out these incredible truths here in Romans chapter 8. We saw that the Spirit sets us free from the law of sin and death. We are free to walk in obedience to God. He has set our minds. He's given us a new nature. We see things differently. We have a new power. His very power dwells within us. He makes us alive. 
He empowers us to put to death sinful deeds of the body. He has adopted us into his family. He has sealed us for the day of redemption. He gives us gifts to be used in the, in the body of Christ. We'll talk about that in chapter 12. All the different things that the Spirit of God does in the lives of believers. Now, I want to give you a second big truth this morning that comes right out of verses 16 or 17. We started this last week. I told you we weren't going to finish. We're just going to kind of pick up today and carry on there where we were. First big truth we saw the first few weeks, the Spirit of God indwells every believer. That's awesome. Second big truth this morning is this. The Holy Spirit bears witness. He is testifying. He is declaring. He is making evident that we are God's children and we are heirs of future glory. The Holy Spirit of God is testifying, is bearing witness, like a, a witness at a trial to the reality of, that we are the children of God. He does that as He leads us toward Christ's likeness. We saw that last week. He does that as He cries out from within us, Abba, Father, this desire for our Father, and this hunger for God. It's the Spirit of God within us confirming declaring who are the children of God. Now, from that, Paul wants you to see some incredible implications for the children of God this morning. Now, look at verse 16. We'll pick right up. This is where our big truth came from. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then Paul's going to list out some privileges of God's sons and daughters. These privileges are there's power that the Spirit gives us to fight sin. There's this security we have in the Spirit of no condemnation. There's authority we have as children of God. Listen, brothers and sisters, as you live your life and walk around on this earth, there's not a place you go that you don't walk with the authority of a child of the King. It's who you are. It's a degree of authority that we've been given as a child of the king there's intimacy that God has given us through his spirit where we cry Abba father all those things are ours because we are sons and daughters the way we know we're sons and daughters is because of the work of the spirit of God within us those who are led by the spirit of God Romans says these are the children of God now what are some things that are true about that let's keep reading verse 17 and I'll just say as you get into verse 17 in these remaining verses just take a deep breath I mean, these are breathtaking realities of the people of God. He says, okay, so since or if you're children, children of God, then you're also heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Provided we suffer with Him, we'll talk about that in just a minute, in order that we may also be glorified with Him. By the way, brothers and sisters, that's the future of every child of God. There's a day coming you'll be glorified with Christ. What does that look like? What does that mean? Paul's going to tell us in here. So your big truth, you already give you that. The Holy Spirit bears witness that we're God's children, future glory. I'm going to give you two big ideas this morning. That's all we're going to look at and press those out. Here's your first big idea. It comes out of the big truth is this. God's children are heirs waiting for our promised inheritance. That's our life. 
We are children, we are heirs, we are currently waiting, we're in this place, this fallen world, we're waiting for the day that we gain our future inheritance in Christ. Now look at verse 17 a little closer with me, because these, some of these words we don't use as much, and you've got to know they are packed with meaning. He says we are heirs. Who, who are heirs? The children of God, all God's people. Now, if you were reading that and you heard that in the first century, that is a scandalous statement because in the ancient world, there was usually one heir of all the riches of the father, and that was the firstborn son. The other children might get something of an inheritance, but it was nothing compared to the firstborn son. He was the heir. Here, God is saying an incredible statement to you, child of God, Every single child of God is an heir of God with all the blessings and benefits that go with it. Scandalous statement in this day. And Paul goes on and he says, not only that, you are heirs of God. The church at Rome was Jewish and Gentile. The Jewish believers might have a tendency to say, well, you know, because of our Jewish heritage, we are the true heirs of God. And Gentiles, you have to take a secondary status. Does God have a future for the nation of Israel? Yes. But in this context, he's saying every child of God who's trusted in Christ by faith is an heir of God. That's good news, brothers and sisters. And he goes on, and he, it's as if Paul can't stop. He just continues to come out with his truth. He says, not only that, you're a co-heir with Christ. Remember the truths that we looked at in Romans chapter 6 when we said, by faith we are in union with Christ. Meaning when Christ died, we died with him. When Christ rose, we rose with him. When Christ reigns in glory, we are going to reign with him. We are in union with Christ. The idea that we are a co-heir with Christ who will inherit the world and everything in it ought to be mind-boggling and breathtaking to you this morning. It is yours in Christ, guaranteed by the Spirit of God in you. God's children are heirs waiting for our promised inheritance. I want to stop right here and I want to make this really practical to you this morning. So, okay, Pastor Mike, I, I, I'm kind of getting all this. We're talking about our inheritance. I don't know that I think a lot about that as a believer. Why is it so important for us to understand our status as heirs and the future inheritance promised to every believer? Why is it so important? Why does Paul go to such great length here to talk about that? Let me give you a couple of reasons. This is huge for you and me this morning. Number one. How do we as believers in this world resist the endless call to accumulate more and more and more and more stuff and the call in the world that we live in and the water that we drink in this world that your true joy is found on the other side of that next purchase? How do we resist that? Paul says the way is you realize you have a greater future inheritance that makes the things of this world seem so small. I'll give you another question. How do we as believers, when we're called to sacrifice, which if you're following Christ and you're walking in the Spirit, you're desiring to honor God and the things that we're talking about in Romans, there's sacrifice involved with that. It's got to be. And there's times that we have to ask the question, is this thing I'm laying down, or is this thing I'm walking away from, or is this thing I'm taking on in my life, or whatever that is for the name of Christ, 
is that sacrifice worth it? You ever thought that? You will. And Paul even goes a step further here and he says this, okay, even beyond sacrifice, there's going to be suffering in this life for believers. And the question is, okay, in that suffering and all that's involved in that in this world, is that suffering with Christ worth it? Paul answers that here, read on verse 18. If you've asked those questions, and you will, Paul says this, For I consider, or here's my mindset, the Apostle Paul says, that the sufferings of this present time are not even worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Paul says, if you understand this great inheritance and you understand what is ours in Christ, the things of this world will seem less appealing, the pains of this world will be manageable, and any suffering that you're allowed to walk through for Jesus Christ, here's what you're going to be able to say, it is worth it. Worth it. Paul says, in light of our future glory, I consider the sufferings of this present world, they don't even, they don't even compare. There's no comparison. Now, Pastor Mike, I'm kind of following along on this a little bit, this inheritance idea and that we're heirs as sons of God that Paul is talking about here. But can you, what is that inheritance? I mean, what it, practically what is it? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. I'm going to kind of follow an outline Pastor John Piper used, very helpful. But let me describe our future inheritance. I'm going to give you three terms to describe it. These words are not going to be on the screen. You should write these down. Talk about these in your life group. We're going to explore these a little bit more Wednesday night and behind the message. First, let me give you a passage that helps us understand the weight and the value of our inheritance that we're guaranteed as heirs of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter is writing to a group of believers in the first century who practically lost everything for following Jesus. They were persecuted, they'd lost possessions, they'd been scattered, they'd lost family members. And he writes to them from 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, Peter writes, he says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That sounds familiar. We just sang a song about it, right? Living hope. Our hope is alive. Our future is just as alive as Jesus is alive. There's a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Stop right there. What for? Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance. No, there's an inheritance guaranteed for every believer, okay? What's that inheritance like? He goes on and says, it is imperishable. It'll never die. It never weakens. It's undefiled. The things of the world can't defile it in any way. It will not fade away. It's not growing dimmer. Whatever this inheritance is, it can't be touched by the things of the world. It is reserved in heaven for you. It's awesome. So help me, Pastor Mike, what is this inheritance? I'm going to give you three words quickly. This is one of those times, man, I wish I had time to stop on each one of these because they're so immense. Three things. Number one, part of our inheritance is the world. The world itself. And I'm not talking about our fall. I'm not talking about the fallen world. What, what do you mean, Pastor Mike? In Romans chapter 4, just write these down, verse 13. We were there a few weeks ago. God makes a promise to a man named Abraham. He says to Abraham, the promise to Abraham 
or to his descendants that he would be the heir of the world. What? What about us? Galatians chapter 3 verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you, us, are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. The same promise Abraham got is true of Abraham's heirs by faith, which is us. We are heirs of the world by faith in Christ. Pastor Mike, I'm not even sure what that means. Here's what that means. John Piper helps us. I'm going to give you this quote. He said, what is our inheritance? It's the world, the earth and all that is in it, the nations and all things. Practically, what does that mean? At least it means this, he says, that everything that exists in future glory will serve your happiness. All things are yours, life and death. All things are yours. All things will be to serve your everlasting joy. When you think God gives you an inheritance for anything less than our joy, if you're a parent and you entrust an inheritance to your children, it's for their eternal joy, not just in stuff, but in you. God has entrusted in this inheritance, and we will reign with Christ over the world someday. So why in the world at my work next week do I have to step on people's heads and their lives and push them down to find a place of status in this planet listen to me child of God there's a day that you will co-reign with Christ over all that has ever been created that's crazy that's like a fantasy novel that's Romans 8 the world secondly and even greater is God himself See, where do you get that from? In other words, it's, it's not just the things that we inherit. The things are intended to point to Him for eternity. Romans chapter 5, we were there a few weeks ago. Paul says, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And here's our future. And we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says our current status is we are exulting, we are rejoicing in this future hope, and here's what it is, the glory of God himself. In other words, there is a future for you and I that we will know, enjoy, worship our God in an unlimited way that right now in our limited bodies we can't even understand. There is a day coming when you will be able to enjoy fully and worship completely and know more fully this infinite God and all of His glory. Glory just means the totality of all that He is and will exult in that glory of God forever and ever and ever and ever. And by the way, if if you're a child of God and the Spirit of God is at work in you, you long for that. And you grieve over our limitations in this life of desiring more of God and not being able to even fully comprehend Him. And our senses are so tainted because of sin and weakness. There's a day coming when we will know God in an unlimited way in our glorified, eternal life, glorified bodies. We will know the glory of God. Jesus in John chapter 17, by the way, you can just write this down. John 17, 24 Jesus prayed for this for you. The night before he's crucified, he says, Father, I desire that they also, his disciples and us, whom you have given me, will be there with me where I am, that they may see my glory. 
Jesus is praying, has prayed, and is interceding that there will be a day in your future inheritance that you will be able to behold the glory of God in an unlimited way. Thirdly, it means we inherit the world. It means we inherit God himself. And it means we inherit redeemed and glorified bodies. Look at Romans 8, 19. He says, For the creation itself with eager longing is waiting for the revealing of the sons of God. There is a day, the word revealing means to uncover or to unveil. It is an appearing. The day is coming when you will be revealed, not as who you are now, but as who you're going to be with our glorified bodies and our new eternal capacities. Colossians chapter 3, 2 through 4 says this, For you have died and your life now is hidden with Christ in God. You're full, you don't even fully know all the life that is yours in Christ. It is hidden because of this temporary body we have now living in this fallen world. But there is a day, Paul says in Colossians, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. And glory there is not so much a place, it's a state of being. You could say it this way, you will be revealed with him glorious glorified body like his and you know what's important about that is because without a glorified body we will not be able to know and fully comprehend all of who he is so if God himself is going to be our inheritance we have to have a glorified body with these glorified capacities to even be able to see and understand the glories of heaven and the glories of God and we get a glorified body when Christ returns we will be revealed with him can I give you a quick illustration about that? I mean, we don't even understand fully our own limitations now in this fallen world. When I was a kid, I remember going to the doctor, and my mom took me there, and I don't remember why, it was a checkup or something, and the doctor did an eye test. And I was in sixth grade or something like that, and I had no idea, but when the doctor gave me an eye test, he said, son, you're half blind, you can't even see. I didn't even know it. So like two weeks later, you know, back in the old days, they had to send off for the glasses, and it took forever, and you go get them. And I remember putting those glasses on, driving home with my mom, and looking out the window and going, my goodness, I was blind. I didn't even know it. Really. I could see things that I never even knew were there, like leaves on trees and grass, blades of grass and other human beings, and all these things I didn't even know was there. And you get the idea, there was a blindness and a capacity that was so limited in me, I didn't even fully know it. You are so limited in your own capacity to behold the greatness of God. But Paul says there is coming a day when you will be transformed into this glorified body. And it's as if your eyes will be able to see like you've never seen before the glory of God. It's your inheritance. It's my inheritance, the glory of God, the world, our glorified, transformed bodies. God's children are heirs waiting for our promised inheritance. So why are we waiting? Well, what is it like now in this world? And Paul goes on, he talks about the reason we're waiting is because we live in this fallen world. And he describes what this world is like in verse 20. And he says, for the creation now was subjected to futility. You and I live in a fallen, futile world, right? We all know that. 
Nobody, nobody can deny that. If you're an atheist and you read verse 20 of Romans, you can't deny that this world is subjected to futility. The word futility means frustration, vanity, emptiness. Nature is not what it ought to be. Creation is not what it was created to be. What does that mean? Things break. Things wear down. Things tear up. Joints get old. Muscles wear out. Our mind decays. Things don't work like they're intended to work. Our computers never work the way they're intended to work. Yeah, all those things that just frustrate us in this world. Why is that? Because, verse 20, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. God subjected this world to futility. Why? Because when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, they lived in a perfect world and they took on limitations because of their sin and a limited human being can't live in an infinite world. God in His grace subjected the world because of our sin. But He did it in hope. In the verse 20, in hope. In hope. In hope of what? Verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. In hope, God built into creation itself constant reminders that creation itself is groaning towards something. Creation is groaning toward glory. All of creation, every time something breaks, every time something wears down, every time you get a thorn, every time these things just don't work the way they're intended to be, you feel this frustration. The creation feels that same frustration, and it's intended to be a reminder to you and me that God has subjected the creation itself to futility, but not forever. <laughs> not forever. There's a hope that he has subjected all this to. It is to remind us that the world is not as it was intended to be, and it's not yet what it will be. And when is that going to happen? When Christ returns and is revealed, and the people of God are revealed in all of our glory. And what's this? God in his grace will not redeem the world until he redeems the people of God. That's coming. Now we wait in this fallen world. And verse 23, he goes on, he talks about the realities. He says, not only the creation, but us. Every day, we, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit is in us, and the first fruits, I, I'm not a farmer, but the, the idea of my understanding is first fruits are indicative of the whole crop. So whatever comes in in the first fruits is going to be indicative of what the crop's going to be like. The first fruits of the Spirit is Christ's likeness. The fruit of the Spirit, this image of Christ that He's building in us, that's just a foretaste that when we will be glorified like Christ forever. He's doing that in us. But we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons. We groan our way to glory. We feel that, and you feel that, and all those groanings of this fallen body and this fallen world is to be a reminder to say in hope glory is coming glory is coming for creation glory is coming for God's people and it will happen when God returns and makes it all right come Lord Jesus we long for that day 
And Paul says the guarantee of that for you is the presence of the Spirit of God in your life. Ephesians 1.14, it's not on the screen, just look it up. It says this, that we were sealed with the Spirit of God for the day of redemption that's coming The Spirit of God is the guarantee, the seal on your life. His work, His activity will be ongoing so that just as surely as you're saved by faith, we are being sanctified by faith. And listen, you will be glorified by faith because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. The Spirit confirms and bears witness to that reality. It changes our lives. C.S. Lewis said it this way, he said, I find in myself a desire, he said, "If if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, and we've all been there, right? Well, it just didn't satisfy. The most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. That's you, and that's me, and that's us. God's children are heirs waiting for our promised inheritance to come and we groan our way to glory now the second truth or the second big idea is going to be a little bit shorter and it and it goes back to something paul says in verse 17 that that it's a little bit confusing for us i think so second big idea is this and we're going to close on this will be much shorter according to romans 8 17 god's children suffer God's children suffer with Jesus while waiting to share the glory of Jesus now look back at verse 17 he says it Paul says that if children the spirit confirms that the spirit's bearing witness to that the spirit guarantees that by faith in Christ we're heirs we're heirs of God we're fellow heirs of Christ and then he makes this little statement he said provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him okay everybody listen everybody look up here what does that mean you could read that and you could conclude wrongly that what this means is that suffering earns glory that if I'm going to be glorified with God, I've got to go through some kind of suffering. So I better go out and find some kind of suffering. Maybe that means I crash an airplane into a building and I suffer and that earns me some kind of martyrdom. That's not the teaching of the gospel at all. What does this mean? The idea of suffering here, the word literally means to suffer together. It has the idea of the daily anxieties in this life, the tensions in this life, even the persecutions in this life. If you were to translate this passage literally, this phrase literally would be this way. If we suffer together, that we may also be glorified together. Okay, still not getting it, Pastor Mike. Help me. Help me understand this. The point is not that suffering earns us glory, But for the child of God who is united in Christ, you can't separate suffering from glory. Still not getting it. Help me. Okay. You remember Romans 6? We made reference to it just a few minutes ago, the the reality that we are united with Christ. 
What, what is true of Christ is now true of us in Christ. Christ is in us. We're in Christ. We, we're united in his death. We're united in his resurrection. We're going to reign with him one day. And in the same way, now, because we are in this fallen, broken world, Christ in me, Christ in you, Christ in us, we are with him. That means in this fallen world, we're going to suffer as Christ suffered. To varying degrees, I know that. This message is going to fall on the ears of a Christian in China or India a little bit different than it falls on Western Americans. Let's just be honest. But there's varying degrees. There's varying realities of this. Let me say it this way. We share in the life of Christ, and the more Christ is manifest in our life now, which, remember, what is the Spirit doing? First fruits of the Spirit in our lives now is Christ-likeness. The more Christ-like we become in this life now, the more we will experience the sufferings just like Jesus did when he walked on this fallen earth. Because you can't separate glory and suffering because it's Christ in me. We share in those things. I'll give you some examples. You and I, we live in a decaying world where everything breaks, bodies decay, and loved ones die inevitable Jesus walked up to the tomb of Lazarus his friend and experienced the loss of his friend and suffered through the loss of his friend and the Bible said Jesus wept suffered through that you live in a world that's not your home and the more we become like Christ the more alien the world feels to us because remember beloved this is not home our citizenship is in heaven. We eagerly wait for a Savior from there. This world is not home. You feel like an alien sometimes. John 1 said of Jesus, He came into His own and His own received Him not. The more you become like Jesus, the less at home you'll feel here. You suffer through it. We're tempted with the world's goods. We're tempted that joy is on the next side of the next purchase. I said this earlier. Jesus walked through this, and the Bible says of Jesus, the foxes have holes, the birds have nests, but the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head. He battled with the materialism of this world. He suffered through that, if you will. Now, let me get a little more serious. Listen, in our pursuit of holiness, which is the work of the Spirit in us, we saw that last week, you will expose sin in your own life. You will confront religious hypocrisy in others. You will expose empathy or apathy in your own life and complacency. And let me tell you something. The world will call you judgmental, a hypocrite, try to fit you into its mold of complacency. And here's what Jesus said. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. I'll take it a step further. The more we become like Jesus and the more we make known the message of the gospel in a fallen world, just remind you, you are sharing a message that declares that men or women are broken, they are under wrath, they cannot save themselves, and Jesus is the only way. And the more you do that faithfully, the more you will attempt it to be silenced. People will try to quiet you. People will push you to the side. You're some kind of weirdo, and they will not want you to be, continue to speak, and it's continuing to grow in this world that way. Remember, Remember what they said of Jesus, 
Pilate responded and said, Then what shall I do with this Jesus who is called Messiah? And the crowd shouted back, Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. What's the point? Point Paul says is this, and I'm going to ask the team just to come on up and begin to play. We're going to enter into a time of response in just a minute, but here, here's the response. Paul said, if you're children, you're heirs. You're heirs of God, you're co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him now, which bears evidence that there's a future glory for us to come. You can't separate suffering from glory because it's Christ in us. We are united in his death, his resurrection, his life to come, and we're united in his sufferings now. And the more we grow to look, think, act, speak, walk, talk like Jesus, the more we will suffer and sacrifice and feel like aliens in this present world. Right? But the more you experience suffering with him now, the greater reminder is for us that one day we will share his glory. That's why those who suffer are able to say rejoice in the suffering because it is a reminder and a testimony of the glory that is to come. 1 Peter 4, I'll read it and we're done. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial which has come upon you to test you as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Here's what this means, brothers and sisters. Suffering now, glory to come. We groan our way to glory. And whatever may come, we're able to say, God is good and it is well with my soul. Would you bow your head? Father, press these truths into our lives. God, I pray you transform us by your spirit and send us out to make you known and make us like your son. In Jesus' great name we pray together. All God's people said, amen. Why don't you stand? Let's sing some of these great truths as we close.